0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon
1: and welcome to the future of education. I'm coming into the telephone line as is our guest Barry Schwartz and I want to make sure that you can hear me. If you can hear me, would you give a green check? There's a check mark at the bottom of your participant window to let us know that you can actually hear us? Terrific. Thank you, Monica. Much appreciated. Welcome to the future of education. Welcome to our special guest Barry Schwartz. Barry, thanks for being here.
2: Um, great, great to be on.
1: We appreciate it. You're not seeing the screen because you're on the telephone bridge, but we're showing you the, a, pic, a very nice picture of you with some bookshelf in the background, and then the covers of "The Paradox of Choice" and "Practical Wisdom," which we're going to talk about tonight. It is Thursday, April 21st, 2011, and coming up next week on the Future of Education, a Hugh McGuire talks about Librivox. If you haven't discovered Librivox, wonderful crowdsourced recordings of public domain books. Uh, very interesting, very delighted to have you on the show. On Wednesday, Pam Moran and Ira Sokol are going to come on. A Thursday, a Dale Stevens, this young student who has decided he's uh, not doing college. He has gotten publicity around the college. I'm not delighted to have him on on Thursday. And the week after that, Passion based Education, School Leadership Triangle, and Mark Fransky on. As you can see, many fun activities coming up, including, of course, uh, Ken Robinson uh, coming on the show again in May. Everybody's excited about that. Uh, Larry Falazzo to talk about his book, Helping Students Motivate Themselves. Delighted to have Denise Pope from Stanford on her book, Building School. Um, lots, of, lots of fun ahead. And uh, fun to see everybody coming into the room. If you have missed a show, uh, here, uh, of course, is this long list of guests. Uh, Tuesday night, we talked to David Shank about his book, The Genius in All of Us. A really, really interesting interview. I, I hope that you will listen to that if you weren't able to to attend. Um, profound implications. You can even leave the science out of the book, and it's still a significantly pro- profound a book with regard to education. Now, yesterday we had a great session in the middle of the day uh, with educators from Lebanon, Tunisia, Egypt, and we well, can have the outcome, remember? Anyway, a really terrific session on connecting students with students in countries that are undergoing significant political changes. And uh, Again, that recording is up at futureofeducation.com. Every session has an MP3 recording and a full Illuminate recording. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. We sure hope that you'll use the tools to uh, communicate, including coming on and asking questions live, or you can ask them in the chat you see the clapping hand at the bottom of the participant box, the smiley face. That larger icon with the green-up arrow, the hand with the green-up arrow, is how you would raise your hand to ask a question, and we'd give you the microphone. I'm going to suggest that you go up to View Layouts right now. On your computer screen, View Layouts, and select the Wide Layout. With a good, uh, healthy group here, the chat will get fast and curious, and it will make it easier to follow if you're in the Wide Layout. Okay, so now's your chance to tell us where you're participating from. Look for the wand. It's the wand with the red star at the end. If you click on that, and you click on the map, it gives us a visual indicator. It looks like we have, of course, the United States, Mexico, Australia, China. Feel free to do a shout-out in the chat. We'd love to know what the temperature is, what time of day it is for you.
0: I'm coming live from Southern California, which is not my usual
1: home, but uh, I'm on a uh, trip with my family, so I'm in gorgeous weather, but I won't tease anybody with it. Looks like Canada as well. You all welcome.
0: Of course, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure do appreciate your coming on the show.
1: So Barry, you and I have a tie at Swarthmore College. Uh, I actually lived there for a few years as a child, and my father was in the administration there. Uh, I ended up going to Haverford College, a local arts college, quite close to Swarthmore with some some small rivalry. Um, so this is really fun for me to have you on, and I have to say I loved both the books, and I think they are going to provide us with a really rich discussion around two sort of themes that have been a part of the interview series. So thanks again for taking the time.
2: Again,
1: you're very welcome, I'm I'm eager to do this. Okay, so I retitled our session uh, when I went out to advertise it again today as doing the right thing in an institutional world. And it feels to me that what a lot of educators struggle with right now is figuring out how to define a path for themselves where they feel like they're doing the right thing for their students in an educational system that's increasingly trying to prescribe their behavior. Uh, the, the two books, uh, and I'm hoping that you'll give us a, a short summary of each, but for me, the two books encapsulate two of our recurring themes. The first one is having some understanding of how we respond cognitively in ways that often aren't productive in our current society. So that we have, we have ways that sort of in our gut we feel are appropriate or that uh, something makes sense to us, that in fact turns out not to be sensible. And the second theme is understanding education in terms of uh, what we've called institutional pathologies. Hmm. Ways in which institutions do the, do the things that get them the opposite result of what they were instituted for. So um, can I get you to give a short introduction to the paradox of choice first and kind of talk about how that came about and what the theme of the book is?
2: Certainly. The, the theme of the book is really to pick up on what, what I take to be the kind of unofficial ideology or implicit ideology of America and most of the industrialized West, and it runs roughly like this. Freedom is uh, the highest good, and the f- more freedom people have, the better off they are. Um, the way to enhance freedom is to give people choice, So the more choice people have, the more freedom they'll have. And the more freedom they have, the better off they are. And what the book is about is evidence that's accumulated in the last decade or so that that set of assumptions is false. In the sense that if people have too much choice, instead of being liberated by it, they're paralyzed. And we see this when people are looking for shampoo in the supermarket. And I think I see it when my graduating seniors at Swarthmore are trying to figure out what to do with their lives once they graduate. Uh, there aren't any constraints. Uh, everything is possible and when everything is possible people don't know how to make decisions and they either don't make them or they make bad decisions or if they make good decisions they're dis- they end up dissatisfied with them even though they shouldn't be because they're imagining that some other f- decision would have worked out better. So that, in uh, a very long paragraph, is what the book's about.
1: Is it fair to place the book within the context of uh, predictably irrational and a, and a number of these other books that, that sort of look at how uh, our brains are developed and in our, in our cognitive capabilities, and where, where the, the sort of the complexities of our current world overtax us? Is, is it fair to put the book in that category?
2: Well, I think in some respects the answer to that is yes. So in part what the book does is discuss uh, 30 years of research that has made it quite clear that in general people make suboptimal decisions. Uh, People don't know how to think about uncertainty. People are heavily influenced by the way the options are described to them. So you can describe the same options in two different ways and people will make different decisions. People are very influenced by what you might call an anchor. If you see a suit in a department store for $1,200, suddenly an $800 suit looks like a bargain. And if the $1,200 suit hadn't been there, the $800 suit would have seemed outrageously expensive. Um, so we have we have a whole bunch of cognitive shortcuts that mostly get us to the right place, but sometimes lead us astray. And And the problem is that these shortcuts are not Things that we decide to use, we use them automatically, and if we are unaware of their imperfections, we'll just use this shortcut, and make a decision, and you know, then later on regret it. So the, the rational tools that we are taught to use don't automatically get invoked to check up to make sure that our automatic answers are the right answers. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that uh, that I talk about in the book, but. But the truth is that we are now so overloaded with information that even if we were essentially infallible cognitive creatures, we would not be able to handle all of the information processing that is necessary to make the decisions we face uh, on a daily basis.
1: To what degree do you think this confusion or the, the circumstance of too many choices. And you give some great examples and studies that um, that show that the more samples that were available for people to taste, the, the, the more difficult it was to actually buy a product. Um, yep. And, you know, the, just terrific examples of how counterintuitively more choice leads to actual less action and, and happiness. Mm-hmm. How much do you think this is related to increased sophistication of marketing and financial imperatives that have led marketers to produce this dramatic quantity. You hear often of Procter and Gamble having multiple brands in order to capture more sales.
2: Well, they, I think, is that know, working I think, or not? Um, well, so the, the, I think the story there is mixed. Um, and I'm not an expert on marketing, but sometimes uh, the people who make products that end up on your supermarket shelves are are proliferating brands because there's basically a real estate war going on, and I was oblivious to this when I wrote the book. You know, if if you if Coca-Cola has eight different products, that means there's less shelf space for Pepsi products, and so one reason for proliferating brands is simply to capture shelf space. Um, the second reason for proliferating brands is this kind of ideology that you want to have a product that will meet each and every human being's desires. And there's a kind of assumption that if if you're happy let's say eating cornflakes every day, then you're indifferent to the fact that there are 200 alternatives. You don't care. You just go to the supermarket and you buy your cornflakes. And what difference does it make to you if there are two alternatives or 5 or 50? It doesn't matter. On the other hand, if I don't like cornflakes, having options will enable will increase in the chances that I'll find some kind of cereal that I do like. So the idea is that when you add options, you don't make anybody worse off, and you will make somebody better off. And it's that's a very reasonable way to think about it. what you know what do you care? What else is there as long as you're satisfied with cornflakes? As it turns out, however, when you add options, you do make people worse off because all of a sudden you start scratching your head and saying, "Well, maybe I don't want cornflakes. And then you start to look at the two hundred alternatives. And you die of starvation before you pick a cereal.
0: So well, I, I, think could, go ahead. I, think,
2: I think it's motivated by a mixture of very logical thinking that turns out empirically to be false, and this kind of strategic war to capture space on the grocery shelves.
1: I, I really like that, and I'll add another piece to it that I've personally experienced, which is. I have such difficulty figuring out the options for my own cell phone coverage, <laughs> my carrier, that I can't even imagine comparing my cell phone
2: provider with another provider. And they don't so make it I've easy actually, for you. Well, I've actually wondered if that wasn't intentional. I they, think it they, is, to some degree, intentional. I think they want you to. I think they want you to buy on the basis of the images that they're advertising communicates rather than on real product differentiation. And so I think they deliberately obfuscate things that people would probably care about. So that side by side comparisons are essentially impossible to make.
1: I don't think yeah, it's a I felt that way for cell phone coverage, that they that they're trying that they that they reach my cognitive limit of They reached the everybody's cognitive them. limit.
2: It's and just understand some people think they're masters of the universe, and whatever the world throws at them, they can handle, and they're wrong.
1: So I see that in healthcare as well. I yep. mean this is sort of big purchase, big decision making, and, and then great, great difficulty in comparing. So, I, yeah, I think it, it does seem like a strategy. In the chat, Wendy is saying that she likes Trader Joe's for that reason. Yeah, I don't know if you see Trader Joe's where you are.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. And Trader Joe's is a hugely successful chain and people love it and, uh, and there's very limited choice. Uh, another example is Costco which manages to compete reasonably effectively against Walmart although its prices are higher partly because it actually pays decent wages uh, and again offers extremely limited selection. Uh, people walk out of Costco happier than they walk out of any other store and even Procter and Gamble you know learned this several years ago they actually reduced the the variety of things they offered in certain product categories and Staples I, I learned this Staples is you a know, huge uh, you know retail uh, office supply place they they have a print catalog I don't know if they still have it but they did have it and it mostly went to business offices and it was you know hundreds and hundreds of pages and it cost a fortune to produce and to, and to nail. so they decided that they would reduce the choice in many product categories just to save money on production costs of the catalog and they assumed that they would lose sales and what they f- because you know they were not offering certain products that people wanted and what they found is that in every single category where they reduced options sales went up so so there are examples out there in the real world where people reduce options for reasons that have nothing to do with my book and they end up making more sales, not fewer. Because they solve the problem for people.
1: Part of what I thought of when I thought of Costco, because I thought of Costco as well, I hadn't thought of Trader Joe's, thanks, Wendy. But part of what Costco does for me is they actually make, I consciously am aware that they're making choices for me, and I yep. trust them. So I delegate to Costco the, the the research and the choice-making, and then and, and I custom and, and I feel comfortable with that, I, that to me like that fits very much with the theme of the book.
2: No, no, no and I think actually one way out of this no one's going to pass a, a law that says you can only have you know 50 kinds of cereal. So a way out of this is to find somebody to curate the choice set for you. You can use consumer reports, you can shop for clothes in a boutique instead of a massive department store. You know you usually pay a premium for that. But for a lot of people, it's a price worth paying because they uh, they make choosing less of, less torture.
1: There was another theme that came up for me that was a little bit scary or, or was hard for me to figure out how to get a handle on. I used to go to a travel agent to book my travel. Now I, I book everything myself. Mm-hmm. And I happen to be a fairly savvy traveler. So I end up getting really good deals and I feel like I kind of game the system. I'm a winner. But I feel like uh, that's probably not the common experience. For every time I'm winning the game, I figure somebody's losing the game. Mm -hmm. And I've I've wondered about the implications of that for education. Because it feels as though education is going to increasingly favor the autodidact, the person who can seek out information and, and work on their own. And does that have implications in terms of how we think about who wins and loses?
2: Well, that's a great point that I hadn't thought about. I think there's no doubt that you're right i've so, I've thought about that in a slightly different context, and that is the increasing um willingness of uh of school districts basically to allow open enrollment so wherever you wherever you live, you can get your kid into any school that you want in the entire district or the entire city. You know, there may be a waiting list, there may be a lottery, but whatever there is, you're not limited by your geographical location. And this has enormous benefits for the people who have the wherewithal to do the research, take time off from work, blah, 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 and seek out the best schools. And the people who are not in that position, which is to say probably the people whose kids most need the best schools, will end up in the worst schools, their neighborhood schools, which will get even worse because they will have been abandoned and uh, many people suffer as in the financial collapse of the last three years. There may be a kind of effort to reclaim values other than financial success. But whether this effort lasts, partly depends i would think on how long people's memories are and how long they ha- have to suffer you know if we recover reasonably quickly and in another couple of years everybody is back where they were 5 or 6 years ago i'm afraid the lesson of the uh, you know wrongdoing of the last few years will be will be lost and no sort of structural institutional changes will survive the the calamity
1: before we so move on to Uh, Practical Wisdom, second book. I I wanted to ask you quickly about sort of the conclusions you draw in the paradox of choice. It feels very much like they're individual choices rather than larger systemic changes. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely.
2: The book is really written for, you know, basically what's your problem as an individual and what can you do about it? Uh, The one conclusion, though, that I think is a message to institutions is that people need constraints. People need to operate, you know, it, what makes people free is choice within limits, not unlimited choice. And what that means if you are an institution is that opening up more and more options for the people who, who uh, participate in your, who, who, who partake of the services you provide is not doing people a favor. So more particularly if you are an educational institution, uh, a complete smorgasbord board menu of things that uh, people can study is not is not doing uh, people a favor. It is abdicating responsibility. So, if you're trying to design a curriculum for a school, and I think this is true, of, you know, any level of education, the thing that you need to be asking is what is the kind of uh, uh, what's the kind of structure that allows people the kind of freedom that really is liberating without basically uh, um, uh, opening the door so wide that people don't know what direction to go in. in in liberal
0: arts colleges more get a
1: piece of paper. One of the guests we've had on the show recently was Kevin Kelly. Who wrote a book called *What Technology Wants*? And he describes uh, technology, or what he calls the techium, as this kind of force-like nature that we're going to have to learn to deal with. And he uses the Amish as an example of a culture in which they figured out how to kind of filter and make decisions about their technologies rather than just using whatever comes along. Mm-hmm. And inherent in that, of course, are the um, the willingness of the people to uh, assent to a decision made by a religious leader, and, um, you know, we may not have the benefit of that in a lot of places in which we're making decisions. But also inherent in that is a belief in the value of educating around the topic. So it felt to me very much like when I finished, uh, paradox of choice, that, that part of my conclusion was, I really want to make sure I'm teaching my children these principles so that they have some level of awareness of them and understanding. Do you think we can do that in a better way? Uh,
2: I do. Um, but, you know, here's the problem, uh, or here's a problem. One of the points that the choice book makes is that we have been encouraged Uh, especially the uh, better educated and more affluent among us. uh, To have extremely high standards and not, not to settle for second best. Only the best will do. And I've never heard a parent say I only want what's good enough for my children. And so even if we are not deliberately teaching our children that only the best will do, We are modeling that for them when we go about making decisions on their behalf and one of the lessons in the book is that the pursuit of the best is is at best a fool's errand and at worst a recipe for misery. You can't find the best. There is no such thing as the best and in a world of exploding choice the only way even to begin to hunt for the best is to examine every possibility. So I think that parents can, and teachers, can uh, provide a kind of education about how to make decisions for their for the kids that they teach or the kids that they're raising. But I think they aren't. And to the extent they are teaching their kids, they're probably teaching them the wrong lessons without intending to.
1: I think it's in practical wisdom that you give the example of a parent who's, who uses the Talmud to kind of uh, teach a lesson, or, or thinking about the topic, yep. and I've wondered about kind of our sacred stories and mm-hmm. the degrees to which religion, uh, through sacred stories, help to shape balanced perspectives on life that are that are often harder to come to on a completely rational basis. Has it become kind of a compelling value of
2: a religious tradition? I think it's a very important value of a religious tradition and the way I would put it is that the thing about religious traditions, pretty much all of them as far as I know, is that what's most, most salient and prominent about them is that they have a moral dimension. It really is all about what's the right way to live and that's what's absent from secular society. We have essentially regarded the answer to that question as a matter of individual choice. You have your values, I have mine. I can teach you how to think rationally so that you can achieve your values, but I can't teach you much about what values you should be trying to achieve. That's your business. And religions are, religious institutions are not shy about telling their members which values are worth pursuing and uh, and how to pursue them. And I think people desperately need moral anchors and moral guideposts and, uh, and the secular world is failing them.
1: Well, let's move on to practical wisdom. We're about uh, halfway through the show. And this always happens. I mean, there's going to be more we want to talk about than we have time. But I really want to kind of segue into um, this next book, which just came out in December, mm-hmm. um, uh, it uh, that I posted in my blog post a link to the TED talk, which in, there are actually two TED talks that seem to address the themes of the book. Yeah, but the most current TED talk, um, and and those of you who would like can, can go and watch that as well. It's a nice short encapsulation, um, but but you do address this question of institutions and morality, and and come. Uh, And through the book, you use education as one of the uh, primary examples of how um, we seem to be getting things wrong. Yep. So can I get you to talk a little bit about incentives, bonuses, uh, sticks and carrots, that kind of stuff?
2: Sure. So so the general theme of the book is that it's really very much an attempt to bring the thinking of Aristotle into the 21st century. and Aristotle was famously what's called a virtue theorist. He thought that the, way for, the only way to have people living good lives and doing the right thing is by having good people. This is in contrast with uh, people like, say, Kant, uh, who thought that the trick to living good lives is to have the right rules and then have people follow those rules, you know, the golden rule and, and various others. Uh, and so, and for Aristotle the key virtue, the one that was most important was what he called practical wisdom. And this is what enabled you to determine when to be honest, when to be kind, how honest to be, when to be courageous, when to be cautious, when to persevere, and when to abandon a project. So there are all of these virtues that need to be exercised in moderation and wisdom tells you how to exercise that moderation. And the argument we make in the book is that any, pretty much any situation that involves human beings interacting with other human beings demands this kind of wise judgment. Parents need to know, parents do know that they can't treat all their kids the same. Every kid is different and needs to be treated differently. School teachers know that they can't treat their kids the same. Doctors know that they can't treat their patients the same. Brutal honesty is the right path with some. uh, uh, Indirectness is the right path with others. Uh, uh, Lawyers know they can't treat all their clients the same. Nonetheless, when we find ourselves dissatisfied with how our schools are working or our health clinics are working, the tools that we rely on are to come up with better rules or and or to introduce smart incentives. Either give people scripts to follow so that they will do the right thing or make it worth their while to do the right thing. In the case of education, you know, you have increasingly standardized curriculum, in some places scripted almost down to the level of individual sentences. Um, and then you have big tests with all kinds of consequences attendant on how well kids do. Uh, you don't trust the judgment of teachers to figure out the right thing to do in this classroom with this set of kids. So you hand them scripts so that they don't need judgment. Uh, you don't trust that teachers will want to do the right thing. You, you you sort of assume they're already burned out. So you incentivize them to do the right thing with uh you know with prospects of, of big pay increases or, or bonuses. So those are the tools we have. Sticks in the form of rules and carrots in the form of incentives. And the argument in the book is that neither rules nor incentives will get us what we really want and need from our teachers and our doctors and our lawyers and worse, the more we rely on these things, the less wise our doctors, lawyers and teachers will be because they won't have a chance to practice um, using their judgment and treating each person as an individual. So they won't be any better at it after five years than they were on their first day. And that will only convince the people who are overseeing them that they don't have good judgment and so you need more rules and and more powerful incentives to get them to do the right thing. So there's a kind of vicious downward spiral. Uh, we don't have confidence in teachers and doctors. We stick them with rules and incentives which gives us even less reason to have confidence in them which leads to more rules and incentives and the result is that patient care gets worse and education gets worse and pretty much everything gets worse. So that's the general theme of the book. So those of
1: you who are listening, if this is a theme that resonates with you, you're going to really enjoy practical wisdom. Enjoy may be the long word, but the, there are lots of descriptions about specific circumstances in which the environment for the educator
2: is so counterproductive. And we'll get to kind of the solution piece in a minute. But before well, we let me do just so, let the listeners know that okay. we do end with a couple of chapters that provide, you know, sort of really encouraging and optimistic counter examples. So it, it, we're not doomed. There, <laughs> there is a way out of this vicious cycle. Um, I don't want well, people just, you know, to slit their wrists, but when this hour is over.
1: You talk about how uh, scripts and rules are, are well intentioned, and they do, in some cases, help to prevent disasters from taking place. Yep. But that they they're very good at also creating mediocrity, and uh, people lose their morale, and the profession loses its morality. There's yep. a sort of a demoralizing that takes place. Um, uh, I didn't want to go to the solutions yet. Um, so let's, let's put that on hold for just a second.
0: Sure. Um, Adam Smith,
1: uh, Tocqueville, uh, the Tocqueville, uh, those who participated in the founding of the United States, there was this sense that virtue was required for the other systems being worked on to work. Yep. Um, is, uh, yes, uh, how did they, uh, was it just a difference in the culture and society at the time, or how did they introduce that that idea into politics, free market economics?
2: Well, my take on that is that, you know, Smith wrote this book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which he wrote before The Wealth of Nations, and is, I think, a better, more important book than The Wealth of Nations, which is where he invents the free market. And um, I think that one, he, he had two points to make. One is that markets won't work unless people are basically inclined not to take advantage of other people at every opportunity that is to say people are basically inclined to do the right thing that's point one and point two people are naturally inclined to behave that way and I think he was right about the first claim and wrong about the second claim it isn't natural to be that way what he was seeing was the way people behaved living in a society in which uh, sort of being doing the right thing and following moral principles was a salient part of everybody's life. And what he didn't appreciate, and he couldn't have, uh, is that what happens when markets start to be exercise their bigger and bigger influence, is that they corrode these moral commitments that he just took for granted as natural. And so when he was writing, it made perfectly good sense to think people are just not inclined to take every possible advantage of one another, but 200 years later, thanks to 200 years of corrosive market activity, people were inclined or more people were inclined to take every advantage that they could of one another. So no attention was paid to preserving the values that the market needed to function efficiently and over time they they eroded. So that's my take on, uh, on Smith and of course it was possible to talk about that in at a time when a society was more religious and b it was much more homogeneous. You know you could just assume that everybody had the same values back then and the only people who counted right were English Protestants or Scottish Protestants. No one else counted. Those days are gone. Living in a very pluralistic society like ours it's, uh, it's unnerving To get up on a soapbox and and proclaim the values that everybody shares, and so people have become much sort of more self-conscious about talking in that in that way, in public. But to what
1: degree did the uh, factory model and the and the uh, systemization science play into this, and can, can we recognize that in some ways as being a form of a cognitive trap as well?
2: Uh, i don't know if it's a co- i think it's more of a motivational trap than a cognitive one uh, there was another assumption which is that nobody wanted to work people basically wanted to sit on their bark a lounge and watch uh soap operas all day so the only reason anyone would ever do anything was for some kind of a payoff and so the workplace got organized in a way that made the uh, the delivery of payoffs efficient and paid no attention to the qualities of the work itself because the assumption was it didn't matter what the qualities of the work were. Nobody wanted to work it. Whether There was no such thing as good work. So you organize work so that it's maximally efficient without worrying about whether people can get any meaning or satisfaction out of what they do. So that's the modern factory system that got created on the assumption that uh, all you want to do is get people to produce as much as they possibly can in a unit of time and the way to do that is by organizing work efficiently without worrying about this, about satisfaction. Uh, and that is certainly uh, something that has been passed on from uh, generation to generation, although I think nowadays the knowledge class has really changed that model, although it only pl- uh, it it only affects the you know the most elite stratum of uh, of modern society.
1: Well, I've wondered about that because Dan Pink came on the show to talk about his book Drive. Yep. And and he echoes the Douglas McGregor and the Theory Y kind of material. And we've known for a long time that for knowledge work, financial incentives actually produce the opposite. Yeah. Um, so, but. But it doesn't feel as though that lesson was learned well enough to avoid the financial crash. That, that those this, the financial industry was very much working on this assumption that you provide financial incentives that would produce better outcomes when in fact it was producing worse. So can we actually recognize that and change it if in fact over 25, 30 years, in the business world that really hasn't become the predominant narrative?
2: I don't understand. You know, look, th- this is a mystery to me. I think that Pink's book is summarizes stuff that pe- that has been out there for people to to uh, learn about and take seriously for a long time. But the dominant narrative in American life is not that one. And I don't know what it's going to take to... Uh, uh, take down the dominant narrative to at least allow for there being a kind of plurality of narratives. Um, Yes it was uh, you know the financial collapse was partly the result of this notion that the only thing people care about is uh, in this case the bankers is money and the trick is to engineer their work environment so that uh, more the shareholders benefit the more they benefit and um, Uh, And it led to this complete disaster. Uh, And the assumptions that all regulation does is get in the way of imaginative entrepreneurial spirit. So let's take the regulations away and trust that competition will give us the right kinds of financial institutions. I mean, I think only a a crazy person would have believed that in, in advance. And yet it seemed as though all kinds of people who actually had power over the shape of our regulations, did believe it, and killed all kinds of regulations that would have, uh, you know, prevented this downturn from turning into a calamity that it did. So I don't understand, I really don't understand how you start to uh, attack the dominant narrative. Because the evidence, as I say, has been there for years, and it is just virtually ignored by almost everybody.
1: Well, so let's, let's move, because I want to make sure there's time for Q&A. Let's move to the solutions. And uh, for me, uh, um, uh, one of the phrases in the book that really stood out, uh, it may have been in the book or it may have been in some of the videos, but you said a wise person is made, not born. Yes. And I love that from the perspective of how we think about education. But if you're an educator and you're in an institution that's prescribing your behavior, Uh, What kinds of things have you seen where you felt like uh, they were able to to make a difference?
2: Well, so there are two kinds of uh, uh, responses that we talk about. One of them, I think, may give you a little bit of a lifeline if you're an educator, but I don't see how it can sustain itself. We talk about people who are, quote, canny outlaws. They, you know, they do what they're told, but they find a way to do what they're told efficiently and they squirrel away time so that they can also teach the way they think teaching should be done. So they're basically doing parallel tracks. You know they're teaching to the test and then you know sort of out of the corner of their mouth they're saying now now, let's do some real teaching <laughs> and learning kids. We'll whiz through the teach for the test stuff and then in these two hours I'll teach you economics the way it should be taught or physics the way it should be taught and so on. Uh, I have incredible admiration for people who behave in this way because they get no support from anybody. But I don't see how people can do it uh, indefinitely. Eventually they burn out, they're going to leave, they're going to get caught. So I don't think this is a recipe for um, transforming the institutions. I think I think that you also need people who we call system changers. Okay.
1: So we're back on sound and you were talking about chartered schools.
2: Yeah, I think charter schools are an example uh, of a way you can create an alternative institutional structure within the within the context of a, you know, large urban school system that can provide an example of a different way of doing things that works. What uh, what I don't know is the is whether once you've identified particular charter schools that really do seem to be producing remarkable results, it's possible to scale that up so that they become the way the whole system works. You know, I myself am incredibly impressed with KIPP schools, which I know a little bit about, and uh, I think they're amazing. But I don't know that we could um, ask teachers in general to work million hour weeks (laughs) the way KIPP teachers do. Uh, it takes incredible dedication um there's a kind of commitment to the mission that Kip teachers seem to have and i don't even know if they if it'll be sustained um uh, among them you know the first generation is full of enthusiasm the next generation maybe less so so i uh, i'm I'm not confident that the you know the best performing charter schools that I know about that exist now are actually models that can become the sort of standard issue of education uh, going forward. But I think that's a, that's really the only hope. I think there are limits to what people can do as individuals and eventually they're going to give up and uh, And the trick is to come up with alternative institutions. We talk about how uh, there's a pilot program at Harvard for t- training doctors that's based on an entirely different model of what doctors need to learn and how they best learn it. Um, and uh, uh, is producing remarkable re- remarkable results. You know, incredibly empathetic, sensitive physicians um, who really have a, a sense of what patient care requires. Can this become the model for medical education in general? That remains to be seen.
1: So I came to a different conclusion. Yeah. I, I have talked over you, so please finish if you'd like. No, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I came to an interestingly different conclusion. Um, I school isn't my favorite model of you know, alternative education, more in line with the medical school model. I, I would look at things like big picture schools or the Coalition for Essential Schools, a variety of other sort of more democratic school environments. But again, interestingly enough, they don't become the main narrative, even with great success. They don't seem to inform the center. They sort of live on the fringes. Mm-hmm. And I, at this point, I, you know, having read Paradox of Choice, you know, being largely through um, uh, uh, practical wisdom, uh, I'm I'm feeling a little discouraged. (laughs) It's like, okay, so, you know, this is really going to happen. And then I got to this part where you talk about uh, um, Seligman, uh, Martin Seligman. Yep. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, and uh, his uh, authentic happiness. Yep. And it goes into this... uh, idea that promoting a person's particular peculiar strengths particular particular strengths, he dubbed signature strengths, promoted authentic happiness. And I actually at this point you know have multiple stars in the book. If is supposed to talk about uh Amy, you're gonna have to say your last name for me.
2: Resolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you mean I work, right. <laughs> yeah, work as a
1: calling? Right. Yeah, and work is a calling. And I got to this place of uh, we are intriguingly getting, uh, recognizing that uh, if we don't provide students with the ability to work on the things that interest them within structured boundaries, that we're really putting them at a disadvantage. And maybe that movement, what's alternately called the strengths movement or kind of the sense of uh, uh, long tail education, that that movement, Intriguingly, maybe more than the more visible kind of uh, large reform movement holds the promise of reshaping what actually takes place in schools.
2: Well, look, you may be right. I think that what I think that's uh, to me that uh, that's a plausible scenario for educating the the kids I am least worried about. The kids who grow up, you know, sort of surrounded by the valuing of education in the in the midst of privilege, but are uh, disaffected by the experiences they have in school. I think long tail, let kids develop what they're excited about, um, uh, may actually be liberating for kids like this, uh, uh, because these kids are going to kind of learn. The basic stuff you need to learn to be a citizen of the world by accident they, they just won't help but learn it because they're surrounded by it. Uh, you know these are the kids who are read to for an hour a day every day when they're growing up and they uh, they can survive without the kind of structured and disciplined curriculum that the uh, KIP schools uh, insist on. I'm much less sanguine that this approach is the approach that's going to work for the majority of the kids we have to educate. Well we can't take it for granted that they're just going to soak up stuff that they need to know uh, so that we can let them indulge what you know what they're really passionate about and let the other stuff take care of itself. It won't take care of itself. So you may be right that this is a terrific model, and you may even be right that it's a terrific model that works for most kids um, but i I have this residual concern that it will work for some kids and be a disaster for others. You know years and years ago um, uh, my my graduate advisor moved into West Philadelphia near Penn, where he taught and the folks who lived there, which was a mixture of Penn faculty members and uh, uh, mostly African American working class um, people, uh, started a school. I mean, it was the, the Penn faculty were the impetus behind it. But it was a school that was meant to serve the community and not just the kids of Penn faculty. And they, it turned out that there was this massive and irresolvable dispute between the Penn faculty parents and the African-American parents. The Penn faculty parents wanted their kids' interests to be indulged, you know, relatively unstructured, let them do what turns them on. And the African-American parents wanted to make sure their kids could read and write and add and subtract. Uh, You know, the African-American parents wanted the teachers walking around with rulers to (laughs) smack kids upside the head when they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And the Penn faculty parents wanted the teachers to basically turn it into a sandbox and I think this was an accurate reflection of the of the actual disparate needs of these two different communities and I'm not sure there was a way to resolve this this disagreement and and that, and I think that captures what my concern is about what you know the future that you're Future of Education that you're so enthusiastic about—the right thing for some people, a disaster for some people. That's my worry, anyway.
1: A really good, thoughtful response to that—I really appreciate it. Um, okay, so we are uh, a little bit later starting with the q and than I would have wanted. I apologize, uh, but this has been a great discussion, and um, again, I highly recommend both books. I haven't, uh, because I am traveling, I'm not on my normal computer, and it's been hard for me to follow the chat on the smaller screen. I'm hoping that if you have put a question in the chat that uh, you would like Barry to address uh, and uh, that you would put it in again. Uh, or feel free to use the uh, icon at the bottom of your participant window, which is a hand with the green up arrow, to raise your hand and ask a question. Um, so uh, are the, if there are any questions for Barry, please feel free to put them in there. Um, while we're waiting here, Barry. Um, my daughter is uh, going to spend the next year working with a humanitarian organization. She's 18, uh, doing work in Nepal. And I, I talked to one of the board members of the organization, and he said um, we were talking about funding and there's sort of their constant difficulty in getting funding for their program. And I said, well, aren't there a lot of organizations out there now who are providing funding for these kinds of humanitarian activities? And he said, yes, but they measure all the wrong things. The, the the metrics that they need to show progress are not actually the metrics that that, that are that are the valuable ones mm. for the villages that they help. Uh-huh. You know, to what degree are um are some of the expectations that we have for education and, and in other areas in our lives sort of being driven by the wrong metrics because of our focus on finances?
2: Uh oh I think hugely, but I don't even think it's just finances. I think it's something even more pervasive than that and, and uh and that is there is this temptation to measure what is easy to measure and pretend that it's important instead of measuring trying to measure what's important and living with the error in the measurement. You know, to me, for example, we measure society wide, we measure GDP because that's a relatively straightforward thing to measure. We don't measure well being because we don't know how to measure it. Now, we think we act as if GDP is a good proxy for well-being. You know, the richer a country is, the better off its citizens are. Well, you know, that's true to a first approximation, but it certainly is not true enough that you should just do everything you can to increase GDP and not worry about whether people are living better lives. Um, And I think the same thing is true when it comes to uh, humanitarian organizations. And the Gates Foundation, in the sense I have, has had a major impact here. They they don't want to give you money unless that you've shown them that you're going to be measuring the result of what you do and thus can present evidence that it was effective. And ease of measurement and measurement of what's important do not always line up. So it seems to me perfectly plausible. But I don't think it's because we're so money driven. I think it's because we're driven to be as objective as possible as quantitative as possible and we'll just latch on to anything that we can quantify easily.
1: Eric, you've raised your hand. Uh, I've given you the microphone. To turn your mic on, you click on the larger microphone button at the lower left of your screen. But I, I'm actually seeing an indicator here in the illuminated session that makes it look like you might be having an audio issue. So if that doesn't work, please uh, feel free to put your question
0: in the chat.
1: Again, a question for Barry. Please feel free to put it in the chat or to raise your hand, and, and Derek will let you come in as soon as you catch up on the audio. Barry, what about liberal arts colleges? Barry, and please feel free to put it in the, the chat I or to raise your, your hand, uh, and Derek uh, will let you come in as soon as you catch up on oh, the okay. audio. Barry, what about liberal arts colleges? And yeah, when okay.
0: I went to school,
1: I got through. Hello, okay. Go ahead and put your mic back on, Derek. Yes, can you hear me? there.
2: Okay. Um, I had a question about boarding schools and uh, how you feel about their viability um, in education today. I know that they are uh, more resource intensive because you have to actually have the kids at the school as opposed to going home at night to their parents and families. But I was wondering if um, we took lower socioeconomic um, status children and put them in boarding schools, if that would um, Maybe uh close some of the gaps that we see across the nation and really across the world. Um, what are your thoughts on boarding schools? well you know, I, I got to be honest with you, I haven't given it a lot of thought uh, uh until you asked the question. It's a great question. I think it's perfectly plausible that that would have a big impact. Um, I think that you'd probably hear uh a kind of political objection that what you were basically doing was educating people by destroying their ties to whatever culture they were coming out of. Right? You were substituting the culture of let us say white privilege for the culture for whatever is their indigenous culture and uh, there might be a fair amount of resentment of that even if the result was that uh, there were bigger there was more educational progress per per year. What I think um I think there's a less uh, dramatic step that could be taken that would also have a big effect and that is to have the school year basically run essentially all year. You know, there's this evidence that this what's called the summer melt is massive in among inner city kids. And the reason is that almost nothing happens in their lives in between the end of one school year and the beginning of the next to reinforce the stuff they learned the year before. Whereas, you know, affluent, mostly white kids are getting these lessons elaborated and stamped in by accident in their normal day-to-day activities in their in their families. So, if kids went to school 11 months a year, I'll bet you that a significant chunk of the... Uh, gap between inner city, you know, poor and rich schools would be reduced. And you don't so that doesn't require sending kids away.
1: So you're not able to see the chat very but, uh, fast and, and curious and very interesting. And Lisa brings up sort of the nuance of um, if school isn't so great, why is more school a solution? And, and I guess with piggybacking on, on that, um, would, could there be unintended consequences to that? Uh, meaning are there are there ways in which that would displace sort of the the importance of families um, and and helping families to do a better job themselves
2: well you're not taking kids away from their families they're just going to school for the school day um and yeah and and Lisa makes a very good point if school isn't so good why why is more school better and I gotta say that's a very good point um but but if it If that's what it takes, given that you can't transform the schools tomorrow, uh, if having kids go to school for 11 months a year instead of 9 means that they're actually going to reach grade level in reading and math, or more of them will reach grade level, then I think you settle for what you can achieve now and worry about actually creating good schools tomorrow. Okay. (laughs) We're going to have to stop there. We're at the,
1: the top of the hour. We're with for you, Barry. It's now nine o'clock, uh, and, and we do make a commitment to, to letting you get out right at the hour. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm clapping. You can't see that because it's a <laughs> virtual.
2: Uh, it was really a chat. pleasure. I hope uh, the folks who are listening in um, found something useful in it.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot of clapping going on, and you're just not able to see it. But take my word for it. Um, thank you for coming on. Uh, the, the books are The Paradox of Choice. The the books are uh, Paradox of Choice and Practical Wisdom. uh, Both fascinating books, the new one, uh, Practical Wisdom. I hope you'll consider picking up uh, great material on education. Coming up next week, Hugh McGuire on LibriVox, and Moran and Iris call, and Dale Dale Stevens on college. Uh, Barry, thank you again. Have a great night.
2: Thank you. You too.
1: Bye, everybody. Thanks, folks, for joining in. Sure appreciate it. Uh thanks for putting up the 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 couple of times that I disconnected These are the trials of travel but uh hopefully we repeated what was lost and what was say well I'll try to get the recordings up later tonight.
0: Have a great evening or day depending on where you are. take care.